Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Qubit About Analytics podcast. Our mission is to make analytics practical. This is not about abstract theory, but to share true stories of how using analytics helps real-life businesses with real-life constraints make the best possible decisions to compete, grow, and thrive. I'm your host, A.G. Tan. Hi, everyone. I think it's safe to say that Richard Kreese has been passionate about analytics for longer than anyone else I know. Back in the 1990s, when I was a freshly minted young consultant with a master's degree in computer science, I worked with and then for Richard. As my mentor, Richard shaped my professional worldview that technology may be fascinating, fun, and present limitless possibilities, but it must always be in service of the business problem. As a UK chartered accountant with a love for being hands-on with technology, Richard was that rare person who could earn credibility with CFOs and CAOs by going toe-to-toe with them on accounting questions, and then he would leverage that credibility to extend their understanding of how technology, and analytics technology in particular, could help them run their businesses better. Richard has also been an author and a conference regular, and it is my great pleasure today to welcome him to our podcast. Hello, Richard. Hello, A.G. It's good to be here. So, Richard, we're going to talk about business modeling first. Um, So what exactly do you mean by modeling your business and who in a company should be doing it and why is it important? Well, that's a good question, A.G., and in your extremely flattering introduction that you made of me there, you talked about the fact that I always like to take things back to the business problem. And, and a financial model is something that solves this business problem. I'm launching a new product line. What, how much of my uh, line of credit is that going to use up? When are my cash flows going to start turning positive on this project? That's a simple task that any financial analyst or CFO or accountant would say, well, I'll just run a spreadsheet on that. So if you think about what a a model is, a model is something that takes inputs and it might take in the projected demand for this new product, the um, cost of producing it, the price you can sell it for, marketing costs and so on. And it it might, from those, calculate a P&L, but more importantly, to answer that specific problem, it might phase those P&Ls, income and expenditures over time, so you can produce a cash flow statement. So in that case, the business problem was, was what does my cash flow look like? Because this is a capital intensive project I'm undertaking. And the answer is a model to develop, to, 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 to answer that question. But when I think of a model, I think of something more comprehensive. I think of a model of the entire business that's serving the entire organization, not just the finance department. It's the sales team, it's HR, it's anybody who needs to manage the resources of the company, generate revenues, incur cash flows, incur expenses, so that you can manage the whole thing. So really, to me, a model is is something to which you give inputs, projected volumes, um, 
how long it's going to take you to collect the receivables, all sorts of things like that. The model does calculations and produces outputs. The outputs might be a PL, a cash flow, a balance sheet, um, lots of other supporting schedules. So, in a nutshell, a model is something that has inputs, processes, and outputs. The simplest type of model is an Excel model. And as I suspect we'll get into a little bit more as we talk about this, um, Excel models are great as far as they go, but they have limitations. So certainly you can think of a model, think of an Excel workbook as a model, but what we want to talk about is models that model the entire organization and are usable simultaneously by all the people throughout the organization. So, so it models the transactions flowing through the company and gives, helps you understand what your cash flows, P&Ls, balance sheets are gonna look like. Does that answer your question? Um, that, that, that was a, a pretty good answer. And let me just make sure I caught the essence of it. So what I think I heard you say is that financial analysts, CFOs, everyone, accountants, they're all used to modeling and they typically would do it in Excel. So the things that people commonly do in Excel are an example of financial modeling. But you're talking about a bigger vision that's maybe more inclusive, more robust, less risky, um, that, that brings in more parts of the business simultaneously and if you were trying to do all of that in Excel, and I know that some people do, they have amazing Excel skills and, and they do do it, but it starts coming up against some, some hard limitations. And I, I, I would imagine that any finance person who's tried to do this, listening to this, will have experienced some of those limitations. So, you know, you make that, I really like what you just said there, because it triggered a thought. Imagine, that there was some magic in your organization. If you look at the typical network um, of, a, 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 of a company uh, today, there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Excel spreadsheets. Now let's suppose that we could weave some magic so that everywhere in that, those, however many there are spreadsheets throughout the organization, Every time January sales of this particular product for 2020, every time that number appeared, it magically linked to every other spreadsheet in the organization. So that you've got this collection of spreadsheets, which by magic are just automatically interacting and one spreadsheet, one number somewhere, because the product manager who owns that, um, well, I, I quote a historical one. So let's say January 21, the product manager who owns the January 21 sales for that, for that product, he's, he or she is the one that manages that number. And all of the hundreds of spreadsheets that refer back to it all magically connect to it and all update in real time every time that authoritative number changed. That's what, that's what you know, my undergrad degree was in physics. So I'm a big fan of a physicist by the name of Richard Feynman. And he used to talk about this thing as a thought experiment. The reason it's a thought experiment is because technology doesn't let you do that. 
Microsoft claim might claim that it does, but we all know that that as, as you have large collections of linked spreadsheets, it gets more and more fragile. So as a thought experiment, if you could take all the spreadsheets in your organization and link them all and make them all reflect the results in real time, that's the model that I'm talking about. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about predictive analytics, which is doing things that maybe go beyond what a spreadsheet can do. But I really liked your, your idea about the spreadsheet. I, th I think that helps make the point. Oh, awesome. Thank you. So I really like that magic that keeps all the spreadsheets in sync. And presumably, it gets rid of the need to email spreadsheets around and validate numbers. I mean, hopefully in that magical system that you're describing, the number will be validated in one place and then everyone will be able to trust that it is the correct number across you know, all the spreadsheets that use it. Um, now, of course, we're leading into the fact that that magic does indeed exist in the form of you know, planning software platforms and technologies that, that, that we're both familiar with. But why don't we um, approach it from this direction? Why don't you share, you know, an example or two um, that describes how this actually works in a real company? Sure. I mean, um, I've worked on models for really just about every type of company that, that's out there. Um, uh, first examples from right off the top of my head is an insurance company. And, and they're interesting because insurance companies have to do, uh, have teams of actuaries that do um, complex calculations where they decide what a, what a premium is going to be. If you think about an insurance company as a business, they are, they are providing insurance, so they're collecting premiums. And uh, if the risks occur, then they have to pay out claims. And the other aspect of insurance company is that those those profits and the the premiums that are in, that are collected before claims are paid are typically invested so there's usually an investment stream with an insurance company so actuary is um, a lot of actuarial work involves modeling it involves looking at trends of losses over time over long periods of time often 20 or 30 years in fact one of the one of the problems that actuaries are having at the moment is that external factors are changing things. Um, we're sitting here talking while the third or is it the fourth major hurricane of the season is, is hitting the Gulf. And, uh, you know, these actuaries who've got 25 years of history of claims um, are suddenly finding in the last year or two that, that, that it's not working so well. That's an interesting topic that, frankly, we could spend a whole podcast talking about but um, so insurance companies are used to modeling but again the actors typically use spreadsheets and they typically have their own model and they have these things called loss triangles and they calculate percentages to, to determine premiums and then of course the ceo of the insurance company says well you know if we set the premium that high we're not going to do enough business so the actors are under pressure from the, the, uh, the CEO and the CFO to lower the premiums for competitive reasons, but then of course the claims may exceed the premiums and that's never a good thing for an insurance company. So, so it starts off with actuarial calculations, but those actuarial calculations 
quickly flow into um, uh, a model which should project the P&L and the cash flows and the balance sheet. And insurance companies particularly, the cash flows and balance sheet are as important as the, uh, the P&L. So um, they might use historical data to, to, to forecast premium uh, or, or um, policy volumes, and then they'll, they'll project a, a premium rate to calculate revenues, and they'll use historical data to estimate what their claims ratios are gonna look like. And maybe they'll layer on top of that additional marketing initiatives. And then perhaps because insurance companies are often headcount intensive, uh, like most financial services companies, um, they probably need a fairly good HR model to, to model their people costs. And then you model the rest of the, the expenses in the, in the P&L, and you pretty much got a P&L and the important parts of that. And by the way, here's something that is my personal view about modeling. Folk, it sounds obvious, but it's amazing how people don't necessarily do enough. Focus on the numbers. So if you're an insurance company, let's see a big focus on your revenues and your claim projections and your, your additional costs, but don't spend a lot of time planning, planning your, uh, your T&E or, or stuff like that that isn't very significant, you know? Maybe you just say T&E historically has been 1% of, the, uh, of, of the, uh, the claim cost, or the underwriting expenses have been 1% of the claim cost or 5% or whatever the number is, and drive it that way. But focus on, focus on the numbers, um, the, the important numbers. Um, so, so with an insurance company, you model out the P&L, uh, the heavy lifting was, was in the, the, the premiums and the claims. And, and the interesting thing, by the way, there is that claims lag premiums, or at least um, unless you're running a very insurance, unusual insurance company, they do. And so um, time is a very important component of an insurance model. In fact, time is a component of every model because every model, at least in the context in which we're talking about them, because everything we're doing is, is projecting what's going to happen over time, uh, because those are the bulk of the business questions that, that were being asked. So insurance models get particularly intricate in terms of time. Um, but for an insurance company, as I said, the p is important, but the balance sheet and the cash flows, very important, particularly cash flows. I, I'd imagine there's a lot of a lot of people doing a lot of work uh, in uh, property and casualty insurance companies right now, working out what their cash flows are going to be like over the next uh, six months between fires on the West and uh, hurricanes in the Gulf, uh, plenty to work on. So that's one example of a model. A different model might be a distributor. Um, and distributors basically buy product and sell product, typically, depends on what you're distributing, but typically at fairly thin margins. So with distributors, again, forecasting revenues is important. Costs is usually pretty well defined because you're typically buying the goods from the manufacturer. Um, and then it comes down to logistics. What does it cost you to market and sell? So a different emphasis on the model. Um, cash flow is important actually cash flow is important to everybody it's it's all relative um but but with the distributor it tends not to be quite as critical as with an insurance company at least based in my experience um 
And the, so the, the real focus is on the P&L for most distributors because they really are trying to shave those margins to, to, to the penny. Um, another group of companies that are very interesting to model is, is banks. Um, if you're a bank, your, your, your core um, business is driven by net interest margin, which right now, as we sit here with almost zero interest rates, is a real challenge for banks. Banks would prefer higher rates where they're, they're, the difference between the rate they are um, paying their, their, their lenders versus um, what their borrowers are paying them uh, is much bigger. And at the moment, they're, they're, they're really squeezed on that. So net interest margins are, are, are squeezed. Um, but nowadays, a lot of banks, regional banks and, and certainly large banks, have lots of different product lines. So they might have asset management, they might have insurance, they've got investment banking, and, and all of these things typically need to be different components of the model because they're almost like different businesses. They're different businesses, but similar. Which sort of brings me to, you know, that's three examples of models. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is all clients think their company is unique and their model is unique. And in some ways it always is, but there's a tremendous amount of common, commonality in financial models. You know, most financial models, um, forecasting revenues is important because that drives everything else through the, through the P&L. Um, there may be uh, some complexities in modeling the P&L, or it may be relatively straightforward. I'd say insurance companies with all of their um, uh, lagging and leading of time and the need to calculate reserves uh, at all uh, on an ongoing basis is probably one of the more complicated P&Ls to do. A distributor is a fairly simple P&L. Um, so, but, but a lot of models nowadays, particularly as the US has, has transitioned to a service economy, a lot of models have an HR component um, and, and that's pretty important. So revenues are often important, HR is often important. Um, in challenging times, and it seems like throughout my career, I've been saying that uh, you know times are challenging now, but there is no doubt in anybody's mind that between the the, the pandemic and the, uh, the the weather related things that are going on, it, these are certainly challenging times. And so, uh, being able to 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 model um, the, the, the the all of the components of the business, P and L, balance sheet, and cash flow, and indeed anything else that flows from that. One of the more interesting models I did, did years ago was a manufacturing company where we actually modeled the whole flow of material through the manufacturing process. But the point I'm making is that although, yes, models do differ from company to company, the fundamental concepts of, mo of modeling and a lot of the components like like a human resources HR component, like a, a, a revenue component, are very common from company to company. So, so the, the, the secret from a consulting standpoint, I think, is to, is to understand what a client's secret source is. Every client has their own secret source, which is what makes them successful. And the more you can understand that and how to model that, not only is that more fun to help the client model that, but it, you're really getting to the essence of the model that they need. I hope that answers your question. 
in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> no, those those are great examples. And, and as I was listening to you, I was really thinking about the art of building these models. I mean, you said something that I, I thought was really quite profound and a good guide, and that is look at the numbers, focus on the big numbers. And, and I think that is in some ways a guide to what you should focus on when you're building the model, because in the ideal model, in my experience as well, and also from what I've learned from you, it's really about identifying those, the smallest possible set of things that drive the business, Yeah. right? And, and what you want to do is you want to identify what that is. And that is usually figured out in collaboration between the consultant and the business people. And you really want consultants who are more than technologists to do this. Yes, you do. Right? And once you have come up with that, then that opens up other possibilities, very important possibilities, like what if scenario planning? Like you can't efficiently and effectively do what if scenario planning if you don't have a good model. If you have a model, but it requires, you know, 200 people to submit spreadsheets before that then need to be consolidated before you can even compare this week's spreadsheets with last week's spreadsheets, that's not manageable. And, and certainly in challenging times, especially, you know, the ability to, to do this in, in a couple of hours or, or less. Is, is just so valuable, right? Because new information comes in all the time. Yeah, it's, it's not only valuable, it's imperative. I mean, uh, give another example of a, of a model not to do. Um, probably starting 20 years ago, clients were starting asking us to, to model um, customer and product profitability. You know, I know what my overall profit is, but how does that break down by customer? And how does it break down by product? And how does it break down by product within customer? And I remember doing a project with a bank, and you may recall this, I think you were working with me on this, where um, we went in and they said, well, um, so we're going to put in 10% and allocate them against that customer. And, and I, I asked the question, well, um, tell me about that customer. Is it a fast-growing customer? Oh, yeah, this is one of our top customers and how... How are we going to, you know, it's really important that we allocate these costs correctly. Well, what percentage of your uh, service department was servicing that, that client last year? Well, it was about 5%. So next year it might be 15 or 20. So what drives that? What is the number of service calls that we get relating to that client and the number of hours spent? Well, why don't we capture that and drive the allocation of the expense based on that? rather than putting 10% in the model and finding next year that our model is a lot less valuable because we're not allocating enough expense to this fast, dynamic, growing client. So uh, another example of something where it's really important to understand what the true inputs to the model are um, rather than just uh, simply modeling a number. Yeah, that, that, that's so true. Richard, I'd like to go back to your insurance example and talk about a particular scenario that, that you and I encountered several years ago at an insurance company. Now, at this company, they were doing premium model uh, modeling, 
similar to what you described on a driver kind of based basis. It was driven by assumptions about, you know, new business and retention rates and, and so on. And that then drive drove earned premium and it flowed through to the expenses and so on and so forth. But they had a problem and their problem was that from time to time they would introduce new products and new markets or they would have products that that really they didn't sell a lot of. And this turned out to be very, very difficult for their model to handle because they were literally, you know, inputting assumptions, right, about retention rates and about new business and so on. And if you have a brand new product, what do you base your assumptions on? And I remember this was, you know, several years ago that, that we really struggled and they really struggled to come up with assumptions about heuristics. And this would have been, if I, you know, had known then what I know now, this would have been a really good application for a predictive model and leveraging a predictive model's capabilities to to, um, to spot patterns and to leverage patterns and to use analogies. So for example, if you're introducing a new product in a new market, you can basically tell the model, well, this new product is kind of similar to that other product that we you know, introduced before, because of course, predictive models and AI all, all are driven by, by historical data patterns, right? Um, so I, I was wondering if, if you'd like to comment a little bit on what role predictive modeling can play within an overall modeling strategy because the examples you gave before were really more you know driver based and and i think they go hand in hand really well but i'd love to hear your take on it yeah um, it's interesting talking reminiscing about older models because um the whole science of modeling has evolved throughout my career and we're talking 40 years uh, or more here and, and really one of the latest innovations, which, which I'm very excited about, and I think is, is one of the biggest innovations in, in modeling um, in, throughout my entire career, is the concept of predictive modeling. And the insurance um, example, which you quote, is, is, is a really good example. I, I remember that particular model. And you know, insurance companies typically put projections together at as granular a level as they can. So they've got different product lines and different customer segments within those product lines. And they typically say, well, I've got this number of policies in force and I typically um, add, you know, 5% uh, each, each year through growth as a result of marketing. And I typically lose 3% uh, via attrition and so on and so on. So I have lots of products and I have to put in lots of percentages to drive the model. Um, and, and that's challenging, one, because you've got so many inputs to the model, and two, it's, it's, it's difficult because you're relying on uh, human judgment, which is, which is a very important component. But if you can use a predictive technique and throw a lot of historical data at the model, you can get, first of all, the computer with its vast processing power um, can, can crunch those numbers at a much more granular level and can, can spot idiosync not idiosyncrasies, but trends 
in the numbers at a much lower level than, than a human can, and basically produce um, projected policy numbers much more effectively and efficiently than human beings can. And also, of course, once you've got a good predictive model, it can be very responsive to changes so that you can quickly redo a model. So the whole concept of predictive analytics, a model which takes historical data and uses really uh, what's increasingly being called artificial intelligence techniques to infer the relationships and build the model automatically and allow you as the user of the model to see what the, the, the policies in force that the model projects are based on this historical data that goes in there. And, and then that information becomes the, the driving force, the entry point for modeling the entire P&L from top to bottom, just as it did in the, in the more manual model that we're talking about, talking about before. So I think predictive analytics um, has a big, big role to play. But one word of warning here, like, like all um, techniques that are emerging and, 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 and growing fast, there's an awful lot of buzzwords. And the important thing about modeling is to focus on the business problem. You don't want to go into this by saying, oh, I need predictive analytics. What business problem can I apply it to? It's, I want to get a much more accurate and responsive model of my premium revenues. What technology can help me do that? Yes, predictive analytics might do that. So I'm glad you asked me that question. No, it, and it was a it, it was a great answer. <laughs> I mean, I you know, what we've seen certainly in in our practice, you know, recently, um, especially around demand planning, is that we use the predictive model to to really drive um, the driver based model, right? So one flows into the other, if you will. But it could, you know, it could integrate in, in many different ways, depending on, on the problem that you're trying to solve. But I, I really like your re-emphasis of the importance of starting with the business problem. And I, I know it's very bad form to, uh, to, to question the person who's interviewing you on a podcast. Um, but I think you know that I'm not a fan of the term driver-based model, and only for one reason. Because when you think of a driver, you think, well, headcount expense, you know, people expense is headcount multiplied by average salary. The driver is headcount multiplied by the average salary and you get the, the, uh, the, the people expense. I prefer to think of a financial model as, as, as there are inputs and there are calculations. They're more like rich, complex and powerful Excel functions rather than simple A times B equals C. And, and, and one of the reasons I, I'm sensitive to that is there are some products on the market that basically bake A equals B times C type calculations into their model. So you can't do richer modeling. So I, I, I prefer to not use the term driver-based modeling, but I understand that lots of people do. And I think I'm being a bit picky. You are, but I think it's a fair point. <laughs> okay, so, uh, you know, I like to finish up podcasts by asking for sage advice. Um, and so this is my sage advice question to you. 
um, which I challenge you to answer concisely. Um, you know, just so that people will have something to, 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 to remember, right? Um, so let's imagine that I'm a CFO or I'm in a senior planning a forecasting role in my organization. And after listening to you, I, I feel inspired to do a better job of, of modeling our business. What advice would you have for me to get started? And I, I realize it's probably not possible to do a concise answer, but you know, what, what do you think is most important for me to know? Well, I, I think, I think the, the, the answer is to recognize that while Excel may be part of the solution, you are not going to succeed in doing a rich model of your entire business in Excel. Um, the limitations in terms of linking of spreadsheets together, performance, data integrity, data auditability, all of these are going to prevent you from doing it in Excel. Now, maybe parts of the model can be Excel. Maybe they can interact together through a, through a common database or something like that. But, but, but there are technologies that go well beyond where Excel can take it. And it's important to understand that. If you look at that same thing from a more... Um, uh, from a requirement standpoint, what you're really looking for is a, a system that allows inputs from everybody throughout the organization who owns numbers. So maybe, maybe salespeople are putting in sales forecasts. Uh, maybe HR personnel are putting in uh, uh, pension contributions and, uh, and monitoring headcounts and and uh, uh, manufacturing managers are, are putting in certain cost data and so on. So it's important that whoever owns a number throughout the organization be empowered to input that into the model so that everybody can be on the same page. You don't want anywhere in your model for there to be two versions of what should be the same number. Um, you've also got to have a model that can do whatever calculations you need. And we talked about, um, uh, you know, Excel type functions. And, you know, up to 10 years ago, I would have said Excel, if, as long as your model can do anything that Excel can do, but beyond the context of a spreadsheet, maybe in a more multi-dimensional rich format, can, can do complex calculations that would be enough. But I would actually go beyond that now because I think the ability to do some of these predictive techniques, time series forecasting and things like this, built-in functions to do that are becoming increasingly important and will continue to become increasingly important. So rich calculations are, are important. And those calculations need to be done reasonably quickly. You don't want a model where you put in some numbers press a button and three hours later you get a result. Why is that? Uh, not only because you don't want to waste three hours, but a modeling, uh, you mentioned earlier, what if questions. A model should answer what if questions. And, and what if questions tend to trigger other what if questions. The exchange rate for the dollar um, is really declining and we think it's going to be down 5% by the end of the month, for example. Oh dear, what does that do to our, um, um, uh, our sales from other countries? Um, well, actually, of course, that would probably increase them, so that would probably be a good thing. But um, imagine that 
the, the, the answer to that question was, well, you know, the cash flow from this particular product line is reduced. What can we do to make that up? Um, can, we, can we draw down on this line of credit? Can we increase the profitability? Can we put resources somewhere else? So these what if questions are iterative and you need a model that can respond quickly. I would say, you know, a response time of seconds, definitely not minutes and certainly not hours. Um, and you need a model that you can interact with in different ways. So you might want to pull out reports into an Excel spreadsheet. And now you can use the power of Excel to present and further analyze the data. Um, but you know that you're pulling the authoritative data from the model. Um, so you, you, need, you probably need an Excel output. You probably need web reports and dashboards and all, all of those things. And maybe you need some export capability to third-party tools. So uh, it's important that you've got a comprehensive set of, of outputs. And it's also important that you have good security so that only the person who should alter a number or see this particular report actually does have access to it. You don't want um, anybody in the organization to be able to view the CEO's salary, not unless you're a very unusual organization anyway. Um, and the, th the last thing I would add is you need a system that provides logs and audit trails. People aren't going to find value and trust the system unless they can understand where the numbers come from, how they were calculated, who last updated that sales volume, or who changed that, um, that FICA percentage. Um, so it logs and audit trails. So really, those are, are the key things. And, you know, just to go through them quickly, inputs from everybody who needs in the organization, rich calculations, results in real time, comprehensive set of outputs, robust security, and logs and audit trails. That's, I think, my top list. No, that, that, that's a great checklist. And, and Richard, you know, um, I'm hoping that I can persuade you to come back and, and have another conversation, perhaps drilling down on, on the technology aspect of this um, and comparing different technology options against your checklist. I would love to. It's been fun. It has been fun. Well, we'll sign off now, but thank you so much, Richard. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Angie. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Qubit About Analytics podcast. Do stay in touch. You can email us at info at qubit.com or check out past episodes and transcripts at qubit.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, take care. Mm -hmm.